0: This episode of Access Utah was first aired in December 2019. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at Utah Women's Welcome
1: to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With this episode of the program, we kick off our series, Stopping Sexual Harassment, as you heard there, uh, provided by Sport with with Utah Women's Giving Circle. And um, our first guest in the series is Linda Hirschman, who is an acclaimed historian of social movements. In her book out uh, this year, A Reckoning, The Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment, she delivers the sweeping story of the struggle leading up to Hashtag Me Too, the movement, and beyond, from the first tales of workplace harassment percolating to the surface of the 1970s to the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, and beyond to the legal, political, and cultural efforts often spearheaded by women of color, quietly paving the way for the takedown of abusers and uh, harassers. Linda Hirschman is author of the New York Times and Washington Post best-selling book, Sisters in Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World. Also author of uh, the critically acclaimed victory, the triumphant gay revolution. And she's written about social movements for a variety of publications, including New York Times, Washington Post, New Republic, Slate, Daily Beast. She's appeared on several NPR programs and Linda Hirschman now uh, on Utah Public Radio. Linda Hirschman, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for
1: having me. Uh, you begin the book, um, I thought it was important, you, in the preface, you begin uh, telling the story of one particular person. We, we can tend to, when we talk about social movements, um, you know, it becomes a little bit faceless. And so I'm glad you did uh, begin the book. What do you could tell us about uh, Tanya Harrell, in New Orleans thank 2017. Yes,
2: thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tanya Harrell was working for just a little more than minimum wage at a McDonald's in New Orleans when one of her co-workers tried to rape her. And when she complained to her manager, the manager said there was nothing to it. So it's a very wrenching story, but it's also a a triumphal story because a year later, the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which had been founded by the women in Hollywood who were behind the Weinstein outing um, took up her case in the case of a dozen other low-wage McDonald's workers to sue McDonald's and their franchisees for sexual harassment. So it's a wonderful, terrible story. I, I had a, uh, I interviewed Tanya Harrell at length um, for her role in my book, and at one point I was asking her to explain more fully to me why she stayed in her job when she was subject to such terrible abuse. And I said to her, Tanya, you know, my readers are going to want to know why you didn't just quit. And she answered me in such a way I'll never forget it. She said, I don't understand how there could be anyone who doesn't need their job.
1: Yeah, and that that illustrates the the forces at work here, right? That you a lot of people that's can't just right. up and quit, can't do it.
2: You uh, can't quit, and that's in a sense a story of the desperate need at the bottom. But I think we also need to honor the ambition and the very human aspiration to succeed and use your talents and and be. Um, you know, uh, have a flourishing life that drives the women who can, who aren't in desperate need. I think we focus so much on uh, situations like Tanya Harrell's, and I wonder if we give enough respect to the entirely appropriate human ambition of young women in you know, desk jobs and television stations and radio stations and in the movies, who want to use their talents and to rise, just like all human beings do.
1: Mm, yeah, that's certainly true. And you point out that it, you know it's kind of the middle of uh, Tony Harold's uh, you know quest for 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 justice, hope at least for justice. Uh, of course, we had the the rise of the of, of Me Too, which 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 helped a lot. Uh, Alyssa Milano tweets out October twenty seventeen. Um, if you've suffered sexual abuse, harassment, uh, use the hashtag Me Too. Fourteen million tweets do that. Two hundred men in the in the succeeding year uh, brought down. But then you go on to say uh, that no social movement arises in an instant.
2: Right, and it's. You know, as a scholar, it's been very hard for me to watch all the fussing about the two years after the New York Times wrote its first article about Harvey Weinstein, followed closely thereafter by the New Yorker, because I know that um, dedicated lawyers and activists and scholars and plaintiffs have been fighting this fight since 1972,
1: and you go back to the the early nineteen seventies. Uh, of course, the sexual harassment, sexual abuse, been going on you know forever. Uh, right. w- w- why uh, w- why start the book Sadly. in nineteen seventies?
2: Um, well, it was the feminist movement. Uh, you know, I think it was a combination of the. Remember, uh, the Feminine Mystique was published in nineteen sixty three, and you have the. Um, so in the sixties, the feminist movement was building uh, women were leaving their single-family homes and going into... White women, black women have always been in the workplace, um, were leaving their single-family homes and going into the workplace. And so they were available for sexual harassment at work. And the same force that drove them into the workplace also told them that they were full citizens and entitled to be treated without discrimination. So the two forces came together as the 60s built, and it erupted in the 70s in a very classic way. There was a group of women at Cornell um, having a consciousness-raising group, and they kept reporting, the women in that group kept reporting. It's such a great way to gather data. Um, that they were experiencing sexual harassment and abuse at work. And um, and the uh, activists who were leading the consciousness-raising group at Cornell put a name to it. They called it sexual harassment. And then Catherine McKinnon, the now-renowned legal scholar, but at the time a law student at Yale Law School, um Uh, developed the theory, had the insight that if it was sex discrimination, it was a violation of the um, Civil Rights Act, and people could sue for it. So she put the legal frame around it, which, you know, it turns out in a lot of my books that study social movement, I find that this is a critical moment when someone sees the horizon and understands that their mistreatment is really a violation of deep principles of American equality.
1: Well, in fact, you uh, you have you outline uh, three rules for successful social change. <laughs> uh, you, you tell us briefly what those are.
2: Um, so um, they are: um, take the moral high ground. This is not a hard insight if you're studying abolition, which I'm doing at the moment. But um, uh, I first figured it out when I was um, doing my work on the LGBTQ, or what I called then called the gay revolution. That um, that movement took the moral high ground, and they didn't say just turn, hold your nose, and tolerate our behavior. They said, "Gay is good." And the second rule is to pay attention to your own concerns. Sometimes those concerns are very big and intersectional, as happens to be the case in the Me Too movement. And sometimes they are very focused on um, the abolition of slavery, for example. Um, But whatever it is, if you're going to have a successful social movement, you need to pay attention to your own movement. And the third rule is have weekly meetings. Now, the revolution in technology—that is to say, the—you um, uh, know—all of my movements go forward on changes in communications technology. But um, it is possible that with social media, the have weekly meetings rule can be done at a distance. I'm. The jury is still out on that as far as I'm concerned. I think it's really important for people to get together and see each other face-to-face and read each other's body language and learn who to trust in a in a very old-fashioned way. Hmm. Now, those are my rules. Yeah, the, yeah and, right. And, and, as far yeah. as women are concerned, my fourth rule, which is actually just like a footnote, is never marry a jerk.
1: <laughs> Good rule. Good rule, yeah.
2: Thank you, yes, Yeah.
1: Um, and so you you write that um you know with with this social change regarding sexual harassment, sexual abuse, women's rights, um it, it gets more complicated perhaps than other social movements because women are a majority, but but women yeah, are also it, across you know, all and, strata.
2: And yet um that's right. And of all the movements that I've written about racial, civil rights, gay rights. it's the only one where women are the majority. So, um, you know, of course, when enslaved black people were the majority in Haiti, they made a revolution. So uh, um, uh, it's complicated, um, and it's particularly complicated where white women are concerned because we white women live among the empowered men who are the source of a lot of the inequality. Um, and uh, we have ties to the men in our lives. If we're smart enough not to marry a jerk, we might love our husbands or our fathers or our brothers or our bosses. It's a very diffuse population. It's very hard to organize a diffuse population. Mm. Get- um, but uh, when there is a change in that large population, it's an earthquake. Mm -hmm. So you saw it in the midterm election of 2018. In the midterm election of 2018, which took the House of Representatives for the Democratic Party and also overturned um, Republican rule in many states, um, the uh, Data shows us that white women voted in 2018 50-50 Republican and Democratic, whereas in 2016 white women broke 47 for Trump and 45 for Clinton. So what looks like a small difference, and the rest were for third-party candidates and stuff, just in case you can add and know that doesn't (laughs) equal 100, Um, the, the... what looks like a couple of percentage points makes a huge difference when you're talking about white women's behavior.
1: You mm. you talk about how a gender gap appeared, right? Nineteen
2: eighty four. Yes, um, mm-hmm.
1: and that's it. Continued through, but the, the realignment is is kind of shifted back and forth. But uh, I, I want to go back and pick up the history. But uh, maybe you know, since you mentioned this. Um, you know, white women breaking even, that that is a big deal if it if it holds.
2: Right. And of course, um what what has happened since nineteen eighty four is that women have broken for the Democrats overwhelmingly. They did in twenty sixteen as well. But that's driven by the astute behavior of black women, which is sort of a through line in my book anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but um uh, if it holds, right, and the other factor is if um, if white women are uh, break sufficiently to offset the wi- in, uh, rapidly increasing partisanship of white men for the Republicans. So it has to be with our black sisters and allies. It has to be enough to offset that other development part of the gender gap is white women and women actually moving to the democrats but part of it is men moving to the republican hmm.
1: what do you i'm guessing you've looked at this what do uh, what do the 50 percent of white women who supported uh, you know donald trump what are what are they saying I, and i'm sure they're using some arguments that have been used many times before
2: um so uh you know One of the arguments is that, um, and this is a very common sociological phenomenon, people go, if you have an intersection of identity, right? So white women are both women and white, right? Right. People tend to go to the most powerful identity that they have. So being white is more powerful than being female in America. And and actually, maybe probably anywhere. But um, so people tend to focus on the identity that they have that is the most powerful. It takes some insight and self insight to understand that you need to, Uh, embrace the part of your intersectional identity that is less powerful in order to raise yourself and other people who are like you up to equality. Hmm. So that's part of the explanation. Another part of the, and if, um, you know, if you talk to them, they would say, you know, being a woman does not drive my voting decision. They will rarely say being white does, although actually the polling data shows that Racism is was the single largest factor in voting for Donald Trump in 2016. That's established uh, national scholarly polling data has done that. So, um, but women will really say that. Um, Sometimes they'll say it's the economy, stupid. Sometimes they'll, you know, say um, that uh, uh, they won't say, but they will behave in a way that is they have made an alliance with the most powerful player in their world, which is a white man. And um, even though sex inequality means that if you marry a white guy, you're not going to get 50% of the surplus of your alliance, the behavior is that even a smaller percentage of what that alliance produces is better than what these people would get if they went out on their own as women. So it's it's a it's a an, it's a kind of a self interested behavior. It's like workers who break strikes; they're getting better wages, acting for themselves. And if they acted in solidarity with other workers, because there's a union on the scene, but they're still opting for. Um, making an alliance with the boss and taking the surplus from that. Am I making sense yeah, that?
1: yeah. Yes, definitely. Okay. I want to do a follow-up question on that. Uh, this would seem to be a pretty good test case for uh, which side do you tip to, you know, woman or white? Um, you yeah, know, it, it uh, would,
2: wouldn't it, because he's so racist and so abusive of women. So um, if your payoff to your white... Uh, um, supremacy is greater than the price you pay by being abused even if you aren't Eugene Carroll and you aren't actually raped or touched, the rhetoric is so toxic for women that we pay a price as women, even if we are fortunate enough never to have come into physical contact with Donald yeah. Trump. So um, so it is it is a very good test case Um, And I was sad, given my commitments to equality and so forth, in 2016 to see how white women data emerged. I was sad. I am hoping that um, the intervening years with the Me Too movement, since you're doing a series on the change, I think that's something we should be watching Mm-hmm. Did it matter? Did it raise women's consciousness enough to shift a critical small percentage of white women's vote? And, and, course,
1: and of course, obviously, you're taking the long view here. This is a history of the social movement, right? Um, right. But uh, I want to raise this question. I'll raise it later in the, in the hour as well. Uh, you write in the book this question, Has more than a half century of epic battle finally changed the playing field? I wonder right. what what you think it you know might change day to day. I imagine that, but where do you what how what do you think to that question?
2: So I'm actually working on a piece about this right now, um, and here's what I so I, I have a, a, an up to date answer. So here's what I think. I think that the mass testimonial part of the Me Too movement, that is to say, the millions who tweeted Me Too, and the um, scores of women who came out and um, told their stories at sometimes at great risk to themselves about Harvey Weinstein and um, Roger Ailes and so forth the um, I think them and and just recently we had the um, girl who was raped in Stanford reveal her name and that's a kind of coming out so I think the mass testimonial movement has done a lot because women's words are not taken as seriously as men's words are. So it takes 100 women saying that somebody harassed them to be believed, whereas one we just saw jailhouse snitch was putting people in jail. We just saw that story in The Times, I think, mm-hmm. this morning. Um, men's words are taken, one man's words are taken as word testimony, and it takes many women. So I think the mass movement has done a lot. Um But I think the next stage of the movement is for very conventional organizers, activists to get their arms around the energy that the Me Too movement has generated and use rather conventional um, strategies to take it to the next level. So lawyers like the... Incredibly well. I told you about Catherine McKinnon, who figured out the theory that drove the whole uh, movement. But now there are lawyers like the brilliant Nancy Erica Smith, who represented Gretchen Carlson. Who are figuring out ways around the nondisclosure agreements and stuff and forum shopping and everything. I think lawyers, like the lawyers for the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, are going to be the cutting edge of the next change, and also politicians. And I would give a particular shout out to Loretta Weinberg, who's the majority leader of the New Jersey Senate, who pushed through real change in the law of the state of New Jersey that plaintiffs can now take advantage of if they want to sue. And finally, I would say organizers, conventional, social activists, union-trained background often, or organizers like Michelle Dauber, who organized the recall movement of Judge Persky in um, Palo Alto, California. Um, I think that the next stage of the movement is going to be familiar to us.
1: Uh, going to be familiar to us.
2: Right, because um because it's going to involve things like indivisible the movement to bring register new liberal voters and which is heavily run and led by women. So it's going to be conventional political organizers, lawyers, community organizers, legislators.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: I know, isn't it? If you think about it, Um, you know, the gay revolution had that same thing. There were like thousands of gay people marching and lesbian people marching up Sixth Avenue in 1970. And then seasoned organizers got from the um, anti-war movement started leading the Gay Liberation Front, and they started taking very um, innovative and yet conventional public action against the people who were oppressing them. Mm.
1: Let's, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back with much more, of course. Very interesting discussion. Uh, Linda Hirschman is uh, an acclaimed uh, social historian, history of social movements. And her latest book out this year is called Reckoning, the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment. We'll have much more. And you can join this conversation if you'd like by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net.
1: This is typically the time of year when Utah Public Radio holds a member drive, but this is an important time for all of us to be well-informed, so UPR and NPR will continue to bring you reliable information about the coronavirus without interruption. You depend on reliable information so you can make informed decisions for yourself, your family, and your community. We're able to bring you this important coverage thanks to the generosity of listeners who gave during earlier
2: fundraisers. Please join them. Give at UPR.org. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming. The critical financial backing we receive from our business community means we can bring you news updates and online classical music programming, and that's a wonderful thing, especially in uncertain times. What remains certain? UPR's commitment to serve our listeners here and online at UPR.org and through our UPR app.
1: This episode of Access Utah was first aired in December 2019.
0: This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. This uh, episode of the program is part of our Stopping Sexual Harassment series, which we kick off with this uh, episode of the program. We're uh, pleased to be joined by uh, Linda Hirschman. She's an acclaimed historian of social movements, um, and the latest book is Reckoning the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment. Linda Hirschman, I just want to read uh, just a couple of, uh, about a paragraph from the book. This, this just... <laughs> Please do. Uh, uh, this, this, uh, th- This just... Struck me and, and appalled me. I think that was your your uh, <laughs> at least one of your purposes here. Um, you say in the, the last uh, chapter of Farley's book, "The Casting Couch," Herb Belkin, then president of ABC Records, opined that the sexual practice in the entertainment industry was a great example of the free market. Belkin okay. says the availability of people with mutual interest means no one gets forced. A chick comes in with a guitar and may, uh, and apologize to listeners. May go down on the producer before, during, or after, and then you go on to say, to "Quote uh, Alyssa Milano, uh, as she put it, thirty years later, you can look at a lot of aspects of underrepresented people in that industry as being sex workers." This is you know, this is thirty-year bookends, and and uh, according to Milano not a whole lot of progress,
2: right? Sad, isn't it? I I think that my students ask me this also, why does it take so long? And part of it is, to circle back, that um, women are a distributed majority, and you can't move to the suburbs, I always say, and get away from your wife. So a change in the political behavior of women, and by that I mean you know, their human relationship behavior wherever it's found um is such a gigantic change that it's probably harder to pull off than any other social change. Um, and uh, so so it's it's like for many, men it's like if they start the car one day and the car says i don't want to go to work today i want to go to the beach to to establish sexual relationships it's as if the car spoke think about the um sort of description of the women that her makes in that quotation um it is as if they are um uh eclairs in a bakery case that you can just purchase for your pleasure and as if the sexual exchange has no political or emotional vibrations, pun intended. So um, I think that uh, treating women as full citizens and people with full autonomy and with reasonable expectations of dignity and so forth um, is just... The most radical
1: pro- proposition you can make. You talk about uh, the, you know the beginnings of the legal case here. Um, Catherine McKinnon uh, had had this this view that uh, sexual harassment of working women violates the Civil Rights Act, and I know. On, on, I on wish that. I could
2: say I thought it yeah. up. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the,
1: and I want you to tell me about the pushback to that. the the, the arguments against that were. Uh, one of the arguments was, uh, "Well, sex is a private act, right? Where, where are you right. bringing the and, public spirit and, here?"
2: Um, I've, you know, I have actually, I have been arguing against that my whole career, right? This is the uh, the same argument that uh, heterosexual sexual relationships are private relationships. What they're really saying is, and therefore not subject to any of the judgment or regulation that we apply to any other aspect of human life, okay? So it's like a law-free zone, and it's also a political morality-free zone, and that is so wrong Um Uh, Human sexual relationships are human relationships, and politics is a shorthand to morality are the way that we judge human relationships, and law is the way that we regulate human relationships, especially in a democratic society, hopefully. So it is um, such a deep mistake, and what happens, okay, so so you create a morality-free zone, right? And you create a legally free zone, so when somebody is being abused domestically in their own home, the police won't cross the threshold right what for For centuries, political philosophers have known what happens when there is no law, the strong rule and that's what he was describing in that very um, revelatory statement. Mm. So it's so wrong. If I could change one thing about the way that we talk about women and men and sex and so forth, it would be to say, I'm not arguing for sexual Judeo-Christian sexual morality. I am not of that school of thought. I'm arguing for ordinary political morality. Does it enable you to lead a flourishing life? Is there enough equality to allow you to make a free choice? And do you do more good than harm? Hmm.
1: I want to uh, get your view on, and you write extensively about this in the book, of course, two snapshots, Supreme Court nominations. So right. C- Clarence Thomas, and and then decades later, Brett Kavanaugh, and and their accusers Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford, Uh, It it seems, not only to me, but (laughs) to many, um, kind of same old, same old.
2: Right. So the Republicans nominated Clarence Thomas in uh, 1991. And more importantly, they stuck by him after the um, revelations about his treatment of his employee emerged. And the Republicans nominated Brett Kavanaugh. In uh, 2018, and they stuck by him fiercely after the accusations of his behavior as a, a young man emerged. Um, I think that the difference is that in 1991, a, a not insubstantial number of Democrats also supported Clarence Thomas. So there's been, and in uh, 2018, only one Democrat supported, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and uh, and it's unclear what he would have done if it had, had been a meaningful vote. Um, so I think that it's what I call the great realignment um, the with agonizing slowness, and I presume we're going to talk at some point mm-hmm. about Democrats president, Bill Clinton. Yes, indeed. Um, Okay, Democratic President Bill Clinton. But um, with agonizing slowness, there has been a realignment of concern for women's sexual well-being into the Democratic Party and out of the Republican Party. So in 1991, someone like me really had no place to go. Right. Because the Republicans were nominating and defending Clarence Thomas. Joe Biden was a Democrat. Joe Biden was empowering them by the way he ran the hearings to do that. And then quite a few, eight or 10 Democratic senators voted to confirm him. They did mostly lose their seats in the ensuing elections, by the way. Mm. But, um, but there was really no place to go. By 2018, the Republican Party had taken on both the old-fashioned religious traditional oppression of women, let's call it, Mike Pence, and the libertine, where there is no law the strong rule, um, oppression of women, let's call it Donald Trump. So it had become centered in the Republican Party. I don't know that the Democrats were, like, hysterically anxious to become the party of women's rights, but they have.
1: Uh, you referenced before the break, and uh, this seems to, to be the case both in the Thomas hearings and the and the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, men are believed uh, at women. Yes,
2: that's actually. I was just thinking about that because I was trying to figure out why the um, Me Too movement has been such a mass testimonial movement and not more like the other movements that I write about. So, so. But I don't know if you actually gave a lie detector test to the people who voted to confirm Clarence Thomas and certainly Brett Kavanaugh after the Me Too movement that they actually believed that Christine Blasey Ford had uh, misidentified the person who tried to rape her. I don't actually know if that's true in truth. I think that... um, uh, men are treated as speaking the truth because their truth continues the existing sexual hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So they're treated as speaking the truth. Um, and, and so what's, if you dig a little deeper, what you would likely find is that the men who pretended to believe Brett Kavanaugh actually don't care whether or mm-hmm. not he did what he was accused of doing to her.
1: And that's, a, that's an even more troubling interpretation.
2: Yes, I mean. in some ways that's a good, good for you. That's right. In some ways that's worse. Because if they're believing Brett Kavanaugh as opposed to, and of course this goes back to my first point, which is there were quote-only unquote two women that they allowed, that surfaced in the public, both uh, Blasey Ford and the uh, Deborah Ramirez from Yale, um, although there's talk that there were others and had a proper investigation been done, we would have confronted the classic Me Too situation, which is a dozen women on one side and one man saying no on the other side, right? That wasn't allowed to ripen, but let's assume that they believed Brett Kavanaugh as against the Credible testimony of Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez, as reported in the New Yorker. Then they're dumb, but they're not vicious. Mm-hmm. But if they actually don't care whether or not Brett Kavanaugh did it, as I mean, maybe they would prefer that he not do it. But as opposed to getting him on the Supreme Court, it didn't matter enough to them. Then it's vicious. Mm-hmm.
1: How do you interpret, and this seems to be somewhat iconic and maybe representative, how do you interpret the, 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 the rage that we heard from, the, from now Justice Kavanaugh from Senator Graham and others?
2: Um, so I think that I, you know, it, it should not surprise you to learn that once in a while in my sheltered and innocent life I encounter that behavior. And people say to me, so, Linda, what are you working on now? And I say, I'm writing a book about the Me Too movement, and then they do a full Kavanaugh. So um, I have encountered it. So I've actually thought about it a lot. And I think to some extent it is a work of performance art. They are reminding uh, women, smaller, weaker, and vulnerable in childbirth and nursing, that they are scary I f- and I found, and a lot of uh, feminist thinkers have found, the behavior scary, and um, and I and and um, so so I think that it is a and it, it it may not be consciously thought through. Like Lindsey Graham isn't saying to himself, "I think I'm going to have a tantrum to remind Linda Hirschman how scary men are." Right? I don't know that it's that conscious. But it uh, male rage is very frightening to women, mm. and I think that that is a big part of why they do it and why it works.
1: Mm. I want to follow up. You, you, you mentioned that, uh, I guess, from time to time. You mentioned here's what I'm working on, and you said <laughs> the person talking to goes full Kavanaugh. By uh, why do you think that person? Uh, and by which you mean I guess rage right, and uh,
2: yes, yes, he had a tantrum at thanksgiving
1: okay okay, wow um so j- just at the uh, take taking umbrage at how dare you treat the subject or what uh...
2: yeah, how dare you challenge men's uh uh behavior how the the form it t- took with me and often does take in public is how dare you challenge? Question men's behavior. Mm. Uh, so yes. that,
1: that that's interesting because you know with ca- with Justice Kavanaugh, you can see well you're you know you're attacking me personally with this. You're you're trying to deprive me of a seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, that's
2: wh- right. That's actually a very I, I find that to be very interesting. Right. I think that um, the the men were angry, but Kavanaugh was both angry and tearful. Yeah, you and, may recall. Right. So I think that that difference is that um, he was being attacked personally. That's right. I but um, the Lindsey Graham was not being attacked personally.
1: Yeah, and the person you you know you ca- correct have the person at mention. my right. at
2: my two Thanksgivings ago. Obviously, I did not go back this year. Hmm.
1: You did. You didn't go back. Right. Yeah, that's probably why. I found so. another
2: Thanksgiving. Yeah, this <laughs> the old feminist
1: trick. There you go. Oh, Just parenthetically, I'm wondering. A lot of us are having trouble Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Uh, just because of the whole the whole climate. You, I guess you found that in your gatherings as well.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't often. It was a surprise.
1: To oh, okay. Me. This this was just a kind of a, a unique, hopefully instant.
2: Um. Well. No, you get it on the Internet and stuff.
1: Yo, I see. Oh, right. I see. Yes, yes.
2: Yeah. But, yeah. um, uh, um, no, um, show, show, but I, I, of course, I was not happy to have my Thanksgiving ruined, but, um, uh, I'm glad it happened because it led me to, to, first of all, there's nothing like experiencing something yourself to make you focus on it. And secondly, it made me the thinker, you know, Linda the thinker, think about it. Mm. And because this was like an otherwise previously well-behaved human being, so um, so I have actually been thinking about the very question you asked, which mm-hmm. is why do they why do they become hysterical um, uh, when women challenge what is? You know on you know normally not desirable male behavior right so it wasn't to say that men should grab you or anything it wasn't the reaction is how dare you question us at all
1: Mm -hmm. yeah um uh, and that's
2: right i mean if i had had the kind of dominance that men have had white men have had in America and most of the Enlightenment West, for as long as they have, um, you know, I would be scared at women challenging it.
1: Mm-hmm. And this, uh, you can see parallels to other movements, right, that you've chronicled as well, including uh, about race, right? You, you, hear, well, you yes, hear this argument race, as well. Can't we just yeah. leave it alone? Can't we just be colorblind? Can't we,
2: right. you know? <laughs> right. Um, so, uh race is the mortal sin of the american republic um so you know re- enslaved people arriving in 1619 long before we were independent nation and written into the constitution so um so even though racial minorities are still a minority um their oppression is foundational, and the, um, the here's what's interesting. You see it in the way that white Southerners acted after the Civil War. So when the um, Northern Republican-dominated con- uh, Congress tried to pass the civil rights laws and the 14th Amendment and stuff, the... Um, White Southerners moved heaven and earth to maintain their racial dominance. It was so dear to them. They had died in huge numbers and lost, and they were still fighting for it. So you have to know at that point, it's not rational, right? It's more important, it's deeply meaningful for them to maintain their dominance. You see it very heavily in the years after the Union troops left the South and um and until the civil rights movement of the twentieth century, am I answering your uh, question uh,
1: yes I, th- I think so it's it, it, i mean it's it, I guess the bottom line is a long, long struggle. Do you see that also with uh, with me too with uh, with this
2: social movement correct the place that i 'm thinking you don 't see it is in my other beloved movement, the gay revolution, the lgbtq movement, and i 'm very interested. And why, um, of all the movements I've written about, that seems to be the one that generates the least rabid resistance and uh, backlash.
1: Hmm. W- why do you think that is?
2: So I'm guessing that it's because a lot of the visible people in the movement are white men. Um, I'm guessing that that's a part of it. Um, Although, of course, they were by no means the only people who participated in the movement. And Edie Windsor in the great uh, Supreme Court case was a woman, and she had a woman lawyer, the the wonderful Robbie Kaplan. So I don't mean to say it's only white men, but a lot of the the, um, public perception of the gay revolution is that it's white men. And it may be that at the end of the day, those two characteristics are Trump's. Not in the small t, Trump.
1: Small t, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's become somewhat problematic in the age of Trump. Yeah, You you (laughs) have to be careful using the word Trump, yeah. Um, Let's take another break. We'll come back with the final segment with Linda Hirschman, this interesting discussion uh, about her latest book, Reckoning, the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment. We'll have more following this.
0: Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members, and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. UPR programming is also supported in part by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting Utah's Red Rock wilderness lands. Details on SUWA and Protecting Wild Utah are at suwa.org.
1: Utah Public Radio is here for you with vital coverage during complex times. We want you to know that we're working hard to bring you accurate and in-depth reporting on the election latest on the new coronavirus and many other stories. We made the decision to postpone our spring member drive in order to keep our airwaves devoted to the important news that's happening all the time right now. However, we still rely on member support to keep this service strong. If you can give something today to help make the service continue for everyone who needs it, we welcome your support at upr.org. And thank you. This episode of Access Utah was first aired in December 2019.
0: This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment. We have about six minutes left in the program. Um, we're talking with Linda Hirschman, who's an acclaimed historian of social movements. The latest book is Reckoning the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment. Linda Hirschman, before we close, I do want to treat uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. This was very, very interesting. Uh, at a time when the realignment was happening, right, the Democrats were becoming the party of women's rights. and right. And then you had... Bill Clinton, who, you know, supported publicly supported many of these things, uh, then had a a sexual relationship with his, a power differential with uh, with his intern.
2: Right, and also he was credibly accused of um, harassing a a complete stranger who happened to be an employee of the Arkansas State government when he was governor. So it wasn't just... um, the uh, now proven uh, issue of the sexual uh, relationship with a young, with a, an employee half his age.
0: Um,
2: so uh, that was a moment when the feminist movement could have said, "This is an issue that we care a lot about," and um, not just the relationship with. Monica Lewinsky, although I, Linda Hirschman, would argue that there's, you know, deep wrongdoing embedded in that inequality of bargaining power as well, but also as to the um, inviting uh, an employee to your hotel room and taking your pants off. So um, the feminist movement could have said, we make the connection between sexual harassment and sex discrimination. And um, and therefore the lesser prospects of women, but um, it was our boy Bill Clinton and uh, the uh, Gloria Steinem uh, wrote, who was as close as the feminist movement had to a spokesperson at that time, wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times saying that um, uh, it, uh, Clinton, what Clinton was accused of doing to Paula Jones was just a clumsy pass. And that um, if Monica Lewinsky, half his age, uh, gave her permission in the Oval Office, um, that was good enough for the feminist movement. Now, I, at the time, in 1998, criticized movement feminism heavily and publicly for doing that, for taking that position in this matter, because I clearly understand how central this is to women's prospects. Mm. And I took a lot of heat for it at the time. Since the Me Too movement, other people have, including Monica Lewinsky, have come to a place where they say, gee, maybe it wasn't such a great equal, consensual relationship after all, and that um, the feminist movement in giving Bill Clinton a pass made a mistake. So I'm not the only one to be saying that anymore. But I'm still paying a price for it. Mm. Right. In the feminist movement I get a fair amount of heat from um book critics and stuff saying that I should not be criticizing Gloria Steinem. But I'm an equal opportunity critic. If someone does something that harms the prospects for equality in this society, I'm going to say so, whether I have to pay a price for it or not.
1: Mm. We just have about a minute and a half left. I want to quickly treat this one. Um, so Joe Biden is the front runner for the Democratic uh, nomination. Uh, he has a past with it. We 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 covered. You know, he he ran the hearings right for uh, for yes. Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Um, what should uh, you know? What what? What's your reaction? What should our reaction or Democratic voters' reaction be to Joe Biden, uh, given so, that history?
2: Um, you know, I'm sort of with Rebecca Traister, the author of A Go to Mad" on this, which is not this guy. Right? I could, you know, not this guy. I'm not. I'm. There are many guys who I think are wonderful and would make wonderful presidents, um, but not this guy. Um, I think both the. Um, Really, if you, as I did in the Reckoning, if you read the chapter on Biden and Reckoning, it's very hard to reconcile that well established historical record of his behavior with entrusting him to the most powerful job in the land after the Me Too movement. It seems to me to be a very hard thing to do. So, um, and um, the uh, sort of lifelong behavior of constantly touching the people around him um, is also a profound political act. So um, I would, I would, I'm unhappy, as I have said in public, um, with him as the nominee. That said, you know, like most people of my beliefs, um, you know, I would vote for the role of hacking tape that's sitting on my desk as I speak to you if it were had a chance of um, taking the White House back from Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So but I'm not happy and I'm a little mystified about where all this support for Joe Biden is coming from. Although I will just finally say this, I am writing about race now And the more the deeper I get into America's racial history and present, the more I understand how black voters in the Democratic primary, who are Biden's chief support, might be so terrified of the current regime that they would simply pick the person likeliest to win the election. And that would be all that they would care about. I I get that.
1: Well, we'll have to uh, leave it there. We're, we're out of time. There much more in the book. Uh, pick it up while we're at the read. Reckoning, the epic battle against sexual abuse and harassment. The author, Linda Hirschman, has joined us. Uh, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. Great questions.
1: Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: This is Utah Public Radio, a
1: statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.